This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 309, and we are recording on December 7th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. It's December. Welcome back. Thank you. I was just in Palm Springs for my birthday, um, and it was hot. <laughs> Who knew? It gets hot in the desert of California. <laughs> News at 11. <laughs> I know. I have a small, very short story to tell Ooh. you about my morning, and it is that at 4 a.m., my dog started barking, no. and I was like, oh, we're about to die because, someone, you know, like right. he doesn't just bark for no reason. So I got up. He was barking at like the, alar- the fire alarm was chirping because the battery mm. was dead. And they never die in the day. I don't know, have oh, you yeah, this? no, inevitably. Like, it's like 2 a.m. in the middle of yeah, the night. Right. <laughs> so I changed it. I go back to bed. 20 minutes later, the one upstairs no! starts doing it. So I had, so I have just been, I, then I was just awake. So I have been awake forever. And who knows what's going to happen on this show? Because <laughs> I'm like, I can taste colors. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where I am. So anyway, how does the show work? I don't know. Idea. You ask us stuff and we say things, apparently. And I do actually know. I do know. Okay, get it together. So how the show works is we are a show for personalized reading recommendations. You send us your reading recommendation requests. You can email them to us at getbookedatbookwrite.com. Or use the form in the show notes on the site. Either are fine. If your question is time sensitive, put it in the subject line. Or if you use the form just in big letters in the first line of your question. So we will see it. Feedback. Our first bit of feedback is from Carol, who says, For the women who wanted reads for London that are either contemporary or historical fiction, I can suggest a book that hits both. It's The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner. In the historical section, an apothecary secretly provides dark services only to women, giving them brews and poisons for ailments and errant husbands. (laughs) In the modern day, a woman who has been done wrong by her own husband stumbles into an alleyway in East London, which just might be the old apothecary store. The book gives a great sense of place for Central and East London. Okay, and from Jenny, she has two for the person looking for Asian diaspora reads outside the U.S. She's got Temporary People by Deepak Unikrishan, all the non-UAE people who work in the UAE, and The Bamboo Stock by Saud Alsanuski, which is uh, a character from Kuwait who goes to the Philippines. All right, so I am going to read question one. We'll hear from our first sponsor, and then Jen will talk. Jen will do (laughs) mouth words, because Amanda has no mouth words. Okay, so our first question is from Emily, who says, I just watched the movie Dune and really enjoyed it. I'm looking for books that are in this same realm. What struck me most was Paul's journey to figure out who he is and what culture he belongs to. I loved how it made me feel like humans can change and evolve and find where they belong. Since I loved the movie, I tried to read Dune and had a hard time with it. I'd love your recommendations for other sci-fi coming-of-age stories particularly ones that have good character evolution and a dabble of romance. Other books I've liked in the same category are Never Let Me Go and the Divergent series. Alrighty, let's hear from first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. 
No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Jen, books like Dune? Question mark? Yeah. I mean, you know, Dune is right. Dune is Dune, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But but it is interesting to think about uh the journey that Emily mentions that Paul is on and my pick definitely has what I feel is great character arcs, and there is a little bit of romance, uh, very low-key. It's Vagabonds by Hao Jingfang, and I love this book. Oh, it was translated by mm-hmm. Ken Liu, BT Dubs, the amazing Ken Liu. And this takes place in, like, 2196, uh, give or take, and uh, Mars, <laughs> <Roughly. roughly. laughs> Mars has been colonized for a while. And Mars and Earth have been, like, in a military standoff, like a Cold War situation also for a while. There was, like, a whole thing a while back. And, you know, there's a whole generation that grew up during, like, with memories of the battles and whatnot. But so uh, there is now this push for, like, you know, cultural sort of ambassadorship. And so a bunch of students are sent to Earth for five years to, like, be part of a reconciliation initiative. And they go when they are, I want to say, like, 14, and they come back when they're 19, 18, 19, which is, like, a very formative age, right, to go somewhere completely different and then come back home. And Earth is, like, you know, the corporate 
consumerist, you know, et cetera, et cetera, in, in a lot of the same ways. But Mars has been set up as this republic where it's like very sort of for the communal good. And it's a very different structure of government. And it's like very like Roman Empire kind of actually. And the values of the community are all like, you know, about community. And there isn't this like rampant consumerism. It's much more focused on science and technology. It's very interesting, the differences. And so the students are really struggling now with reentry. And like, who are they? And what did they what how did their experiences on Earth shape them and how they feel about being back home, home, quote unquote. And like they're all having different experiences. You're following a few of them. One of them is part of the like ruling family. And she is in particular having a tough time. And so there are like clear, I think, parallels here to uh, what happens in Dune. But it's got a very different feel to it because, you know, this is a Chinese author writing from her own experiences. And uh, there's real parallels here, I think, also between, you know, China's relationship to the U.S. I don't think it's like that subtle. I don't think I'm reaching here. Um, But it's really interesting. And I love the way that the story is built. I love the way that the students are shown, like how they each respond very differently to these pressures. And it's just like an amazing, interesting, different vision of the future. So I think you're going to dig it. Again, that's Vagabonds by Hao Jing Feng, translated by Ken Liu. All right. I latched on to um, the cultural element of your question, like Paul's journey to figure out who he is and what culture he belongs to. And I picked A Memory Called Empire by Arcade Martin. And this is so like Paul is a colonizer. Mm. A Memory Called Empire's main character is the colonized. But she is a not victim, like a person who lives in a place that is colonized, who is like very obsessed with the colonizer culture. So her name is Mahit. She's the newly named um, ambassador from her planet, which is actually like a mining station called Laisel. And the empire that has taken over much of the known universe is the Texcalanli Empire. And she is very into their culture. Um, Like, it's kind of a mashup of the Ottoman Empire and, like, the Aztecs. Mm. And so she's, like, they've got a lot of really interesting poetry. It's a huge civilization, a giant economy, a big government. There's an emperor, um, all of that. And her little tiny planet of, like, a couple thousand people doesn't stand really any kind of chance against resisting the colonization. But they are still very independent and want to maintain their own culture. And one of the elements of their culture is the ability to transport memories between people who previously held your job. So as the new ambassador, she is getting the memories of the previous ambassador who recently died uh, while he was on the planet where the empire is located doing his job being an ambassador. Uh, But since he wasn't like at home, the transfer is out of date because he hadn't come home to like update his memory file or whatever. So she's not entirely sure what the situation was when the previous emperor dies. And when she gets there, it's pretty obvious like from the jump that he was murdered. And so now it's like, well, great. Now I'm stuck in this giant empire with no personal power, no political goodwill. She doesn't know anyone. She has only vague memories of the previous ambassador's life up until probably about 20 years ago, which is not helpful. And so she's got his voice, his like young hymns voice in her head. uh, And she has to figure out what to do. Like she's got to solve this mystery, but also reconcile the fact that the person who held her job is was murdered. But she also has so much respect and love for this culture that she's now immersed in. But also, also, she really wants to protect her home from being destroyed in reality or culturally, like 
from being wiped out. Oh, and bonus, her station has evidence that there's an, an alien invasive force coming in from like out in the blackness that does not seem friendly. And she has to convince someone, anyone, someone mm-hmm. around here to believe her um, and to like do something about it. So there's a lot going on. Just as there is a lot mm. going on in Dune, it's very politically motivated. It's a lot of intricate, hard to interpret motivations and like plots on plots on plots on plots on plots mm-hmm. that you have to really kind of keep up with, just like uh, with Dune. So that is A Memory Called Empire by Arcade Martin. The second book came out last year. I read it. It's amazing. I don't know if there's going to be a third one, but anyway, it's great. It's a great wreck. It's good. Good, good, good. I have to read the second one. I haven't done it yet, but soon, maybe, maybe. We'll see. Uh, (laughs) All right. Our next question is from Chris, who says, I'm looking for some recommendations for my 20-year-old son. He's had a tough time away at college, been through a recent tough breakup, and is now stepping back from his longtime dream of being an architect, uncertain of what's next. It's an emotional time, and he's clearly feeling a bit lost. Primarily, I'd like to find something to capture that lost feeling and spin it into a message of hope. He's a reliable sci-fi fantasy genre reader, a huge fan of the Tolkien catalog, and generally loves world building and stories rooted deeply in lore and mythology. Uh, Note, aside from Tolkien, he's moved away from Western European inspirations. Coupled with his interest in classic and modern anime and a delight in all things visually stunning, I was thinking an epic graphic novel might be appreciated. That said, I have no idea how to mesh quote, epigraphic novel, unquote, with, quote, heartfelt story of lost protagonists finding their way through the world, unquote. Please help. Oh, do we have recommendations for you? <laughs> I'm going to give mine first. And I I do not have a graphic novel for you because Amanda picked the perfect one. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? I'm actually going to give you a, a completed trilogy instead because it is so cinematic and it sounds extremely in your son's wheelhouse. So I can't like not recommend. It's the Celestial Trilogy by Sangu Mandana. And the first book is called A Spark of White Fire. And this is inspired in part by the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata. So th- it's like just bust with lore and mythology. And it follows a young woman who is sort of a like secret princess in exile situation. There was a curse. Her mother sent her away. She's been raised like far from her home and her family in the court of this other ruler. And in the meantime, there's all of these like galactic political shenanigans going on. And her dream is to be reunited with her family, but she feels like she has to, like, prove herself and, like, do something that will allow her to, like, return in triumph and help them out. And so there's this competition to win access to this, like, unbeatable, sentient, sort of magic-ish warship, Titania. Um, And so she enters the competition and she's like, I'm going to win and I'm going to bring this warship home and, like, everything's going to be great forever. And, like, that's not what happens. And she goes on such a journey of, like, having had this one dream her whole life and when that dream shatters and she's left to pick up the pieces like what does she do and she's angry and she's lost and she's confused and she's trying her best to like pick her way through this minefield of political stuff and it just feels to me like the journey that she's on will feel extremely relatable and also it is it's such a cinematic universe like you can really see it there's great action sequences there's great characters and it is such a lush world building job so again and that's the Celestial Trilogy by Sangu Mandana. The first book is A Spark of White Fire. 
Okay, so I picked Saga <laughs> by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, which is an epic graphic novel with the heartfelt story of lost protagonists <laughs> fighting their way through the world. So I'm just quoting you back to you because that's exactly what this is. So Saga is a very long-running comic. Uh, comics can be a little hard to get into if you're not doing them like in order, and it's been out for so long that there are quite a few who'll have a lot of trouble getting all of them. So like, what you're looking for is a compendium. A new one just came out that is every volume of Saga in one book. It's quite large. So if you can find that, that would be great. Otherwise, you can just start with Saga Volume 1, which is the collection of the first, I think, six of the floppy comics. And then you can just keep going. Like, there are several volumes out now, I think six or seven. So if you want to buy them separately, you can do that, or you can get the compendium. So this is a story about Alana and Nico, who are... Marco. Uh, very... Marco, sorry. Nico. Just make it up. <laughs> I'm inventing characters now. This is my fire alarm brain. <laughs> Um, Alana and Marco, who are uh, young lovers and new parents, like page one, they have a baby, she's in labor, um, and they are also soldiers from opposing armies that have been in conflict with each other for many, many years, uh, predating their own childhoods. One of them is from like a home planet, and then the other one is from the moon of that planet they've been fighting for forever, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they meet each other when Alana is in prison. She's like a prisoner of war. And Marco is like her guard. One thing leads to another. And they escape because not only are they from opposing armies, but they are also some would consider different kinds of species. I'm making scare quotes here. Like she has wings and he has horns and some of them have kind of pow different powers and things like that. So there's a lot of like not so coded racism stuff mm. happening here. And they have to escape. <laughs> like so they run off together with their baby and then it becomes like they're being chased by these two different armies. They're also being chased by I mean just a like a lot of bounty hunters for many, 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 many volumes. And they are completely lost. They're trying to figure out what to do with themselves. Not just survive, you know, how they're being hunted, but also like, how do we feed this child? We have no family support. We need to figure out what to do here. So it's like there's a lot of found family. There's a lot of them going out into the world and struggling to make ends meet. Like, it's just very relatable in a lot of ways, mm. despite the fact that it's in space and Marco has horns. Like, you know, you know, and it's so I'm about to say lovely, but it's also very, very violent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like those two things exist together on the page. Um, and it's it's graphically violent. So if that's a thing that's going to bother your son uh, i think i mean he's 20 so i think he'll be okay um, but it's super violent uh and yeah it's just it's the first the first issue is alana like the cover of the first issue is alana breastfeeding her child which i had never seen ever it, mm. in any illustration of any book not to mention a comic it was so groundbreaking saga is so many people's entry into both comics and also like speculative fiction as a thing but it's it's funny it's weird i think he'll really like it so that's saga Volume 1 by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. All right, question three is from Catherine, who says, After several months of my therapist continuing to tell me that I'm too hard on myself and I need to give myself more grace, especially pertaining to myself as a mother, I'm turning to books to try to help me learn how to do this. Any recommendations you have pertaining to being gentle and gracious with yourself, particularly in the realm of parenting, would be much appreciated. I'm typically more of a fiction reader, but I love a good audiobook memoir. Okay, Jen, what you got? I am recommending to you, it's a sort of like essay memoir combo. It's Guidebook to Relative Strangers by Camille T. Dungy, who is a poet and is an amazing writer. And she's writing very much in this about being a working mother. 
she is a poet, <laughs> which, like, not super lucrative, and she kind of has to, like, take the jobs that she can get, right? So she's teaching, she's traveling to different places to give talks um, and do workshops and et cetera, et cetera, establish herself in her career. And a lot of them, she's taking her kid along with her. And she is a black woman with a black baby, like moving through America and going to these like far flung, sometimes very small places and having like all of these different experiences around being a working mother. And like, what is that like? And also like, what are her hopes and dreams for her child? Like, where does she feel inadequate? Like, where is she like freaking out about the world around her? Like all of these things that I think are super relatable. Um, Uh, from so many different angles. And, you know, she's just really clear about, like, how she's trying to balance all of these things that are basically, you can't have balance, right? There's no such thing as perfect balance in this world for anyone, and especially not, I think, for parents. But she's really thoughtful and insightful about it. And I think, I think you will find this book very relatable and soothing. So again, that's Guidebook to Relative Strangers by Camille T. Dungy. Okay, I picked, it's just a how-to. It's not a memoir or fiction. I'm sorry. It's Well, it's kind of memoir-y. It's called How to Stop Losing Your S-H-I-T with Your Kids by Carla Naumberg. And the, the subtitle is A Practical Guide to Becoming a Calmer, Happier Parent. And while this is obviously a book about like being just massively triggered by your kids all the time, I think that it's super helpful for any kind of thing. Like you didn't mention what specifically about parenting is hard for you, but it's all hard for everyone all the Mm. time. So I don't think that it needs to be, I get overwhelmed, which is what this book is about. It can be really anything. And the things that the book talks about will be helpful. So the memoir part is that Naumberg, who is the author, found herself like literally Googling, how do I stop yelling at my kids? Because she was just so overwhelmed all the time. Uh, And then that led her down this rabbit hole of like modern research and evidence-based practices from therapists and like how to actually parent without losing your mind. And so much of it is just about cutting yourself some slack and like the expectations that we've built up around what parents are supposed to do and be and behave, especially mothers, Mm. like mostly, mostly mothers. And the the ways that we're supposed to behave and treat our children and center our children above all things at the expense of our health, uh, mental and physical. And that's just kind of like this book is very much like, and that's all very bad, <laughs> which it is. So if you if you really need help, which I did with the idea of like, you don't have to be in control of your entire household all the time forever. Like you can let many of these balls drop and identify your triggers, which for me, it was like temper stuff. Like what my reaction to being overwhelmed is to snap and other people's reaction to being overwhelmed is to retreat mm. and, and you know, like shut down or not not want to connect. So no matter what you're at, the thing that happens after you're triggered, every parent is going to get triggered somehow. And then you're probably going to feel bad about it and like beat yourself up about it, which we all do. And so it's really identifying the first step. Like what are the things that are triggering you and how? And then how can you arrange your environment and your life to stop those things from happening? It really puts the onus on like not just on you. Like it's not just your responsibility to manage the thermostat of your house all the time. Um, it is everyone's responsibility. <laughs> Everybody needs to be involved in you know, creating the light and creating your family's life. And like little, little kids obviously can't take on a ton of that responsibility, but your your partner can if you if you have one. And if you don't, you can all drop a bunch of balls that don't actually end up mattering. So 
cut yourself some slack. <laughs> I promise it'll be okay. So that's how to stop losing your SHIT with your kids. I'm sorry. I would normally say it, but I don't want us to yeah. lose our <laughs> an explicit rating um, by Carla Naumberg. We are just not allowed. We're just not. <laughs> okay. I'm also, side note, Catherine, I'm leaving a post for you. Uh, that's a roundup of great books about motherhood from one of our mm-hmm. contributors who is a parent. And I think you might find some more good stuff in there. All right. Next question is from Christina, who says, I'm looking for a book for my book club. We try to read diversely, a.k.a. no straight white cis dudes because they already get enough airtime. But other than that, we have no rules. I'm hoping to find a book that will spark a lot of discussion, but I'm having trouble finding the right fit. Books we've read in the past and have loved include The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane by Lisa C., a Woman is No Man by Ataf Rum, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid, and The Bone Shard Daughter by Andrea Stewart. I'm hoping to find a book that is on the lighter side, a la Evelyn Hugo, but if that's too difficult slash specific, all I ask is no rape, sexual assault, or domestic violence. We had too much of that with A Woman is No Man, even though we all enjoyed the read and had a great discussion. I'm just going to keep going. I got fixated on the aspect of Evelyn Hugo where it's about like somebody telling a story, but then the recipient of that story like unraveling the story and trying to figure out like how much is true and how much is not true like that's obviously that's not like all that Evelyn Hugo is about but that's what I got stuck on and also I was trying to find something that was like lighter for you and so I'm recommending the novella When the Tiger Came Down the Mountain by Nevo I love this novella so much it's technically number two in a series but it stands alone although also you could read both books in the series and have an excellent time doing so This one is about a cleric whose job is to collect stories. And they are trying to get to this like specific place that's across a mountain path. And so uh, they need help getting there. And in this world, which is like kind of like a sort of fantastical world, that means that they are like hooking up with these like mammoth riders um, who will guide them through this mountain pass and to the place where they want to go. And they get stuck in a storm. And they get attacked by talking tigers. And so they're like huddled around this fire, like trying to fend off these tigers who are like, we're definitely going to eat you. And she, the cleric, is like, what if I tell you a story first? Like, it's very like Arabian Nights. Like, please don't eat me. Let me tell you a story instead. And the tiger's like, well, you can tell us a story, but we're probably still going to eat you. But the story that she is telling involves a tiger and a woman who fall in love. And the tigers know a very different version of this story. And so they're going back and forth with each other, like challenging, questioning, discussing the finer points of the story, all the while that you're like in this blizzard and also trying not to get eaten. It's a and so enjoyable and interesting. And I think we'll suck you right in. And it is just like, it's just a really interesting meditation on what it means to tell a story and like who gets to tell the story and what does the story skip or how does it evolve as it gets told. Uh, so again, that's When the Tiger Came Down the Mountain by Nevo. Alrighty. I picked, uh, what did I pick? The Sentence <laughs> by Louise Erdrich, which comes, with, which comes with trigger warnings for racism, but none of the other ones that you mentioned. I just recorded a an episode of The Hansel about this, and I can't remember if it's out or not yet. So if I'm repeating things you have literally just heard like, on Monday, I'm sorry, but we're going with it because it works. So The Sentence is such a strange, it's so weird. And I think its weirdness makes it really, really great book club fodder. So it's about a woman named Tuki who is indigenous. She is arrested. Like when the book opens, you are, she's telling you the story of her arrest. She's arrested for like a very bizarre kind of crime and serves 
a sentence, hence the title, of, I think, six or seven years. Like, her sentence is much longer, but she gets out early for time served for good behavior and uh, goes back home to Minnesota and starts working at a bookstore, which is owned by Louise Erdrich. So that's weird <laughs> thing number one, is that Louise has, like, written herself into this book. And she she really does own a bookstore, if you didn't know. Um, Louise Erdrich owns a bookstore in Minnesota. And so... Uh, she starts working at this bookstore and she's the kind of bookseller that's like career, you know, like she's here to do this for the rest of her life. And she's super, super widely read. She really loves everything about working this job. She uh, also gets married to the man who arrested her, which is hilarious. And also weird thing part two. Um, and they like just have this very lovely life. He works, I think, as a like a cop for their tribe. Uh, there's like a not a police officer just like out hired by the state or the city, but like for for their tribe. And so she just kind of lives her life until COVID comes. And I didn't realize when I picked the book up that it was going to be a COVID mm. novel, but it is. And I also did not realize that Louise Erdrich's bookstore was in Minnesota, like right where all of those protests were. Mm. So, so much of the book is about dealing with COVID and then also about this little bookstore trying to survive all of these riots and things. And also like while feeling quite sympathetic to the motivations of the people doing the destruction, but also trying to like not have their property be burned down because they don't want to start over. And also, also like how does a small bookstore survive like lockdowns and things like that. And like, it's really nice to see how their community comes through to support the store through all of this. And all of this is happening while Tuki discovers that the bookstore is haunted. <laughs> Weird thing number three. So it's haunted by like the most annoying customer that everyone who works there really, really disliked. Um, and she has died. And now she just will not go away. And she was this kind of like white woman who had, you know, like her great, great, great grandmother was probably a Cherokee princess, like mm. that thing that white people say. Um, and so she's constantly coming in and like trying to learn how to do beadwork and trying to tell them how to be Native Americans, essentially. And she's very obnoxious. Uh, and she just won't leave. Her ghost won't leave. And it gets more and more oppressive like her ghost gets more and more kind of poltergeisty like moving things around trying to possess people it's just very creepy and so Tuki is living this life of like do I is anyone gonna believe me if I say anything about what's happening here um, she does she gets a lot of support from people around her in dealing with this because the ghost for some reason seems to look really fixated on Tuki you find out why at the end anyway it's fascinating and I went in with no I no knowledge like I knew it was about a bookstore and that was about it and it's so strange but since it's about so many modern things like things that just happened to all of us you know I feel I feel like this would be a great thing for a book club to talk about because we're all look we're all still processing all of this like no one has started really processing <laughs> no. what happened in the summer of 2020 nobody like not we're still dealing with new variants like all of this is still very fresh for everyone and if we're gonna start thinking about it why not your book club like why mm. is that's a in my mind a great place to start and if you feel kind of at sea in thinking about it, which I certainly do, having somebody like Louise Erdrich, who is one of the greatest living authors on the planet and like an amazing American thinker, not a bad place to start, right? Mm. Like not a bad guide or guide or leader to, to start thinking about these things. So anyway, that's the sentence by Louise Erdrich. I can't wait Go to read, read that. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> oh, it's time for our next one. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. 
When she drinks, she's bold and funny. And as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine. Partying hard is what it takes. But with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for new talent for We Deserve Monuments. And We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes and Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023. So suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Okay, question five is from Laura, who says, I'd like to find a novel or series that goes with my love of the video game series Uncharted. But recommendation algorithms never really understand what it is that I'd like to see. Not necessarily books about treasure hunting, but books with the same vibe of the snarky protagonist who is good, but a bit morally gray, the love interest who gets involved in the action, maybe some fantastical elements thrown in with more realistic ones, and if possible, FF. Do you know of anything that fits? The answer is yes. (laughs) Jen, what you got? We sure do. I am <laughs> recommending a modern get-booked chestnut. <laughs> it's the Dead Gen Universe series by P. Jelly Clark. The first one is a Dead Gen in Cairo. And this has, I think, a lot of the things that you are looking for. Our protagonist, Fatma, is uh, very snarky, uh, with good reason. It takes place in like a, an alternate version of Cairo in the early 1900s where uh, Cairo has thrown off British like colonial rule because magic has been rediscovered and re-entered into the universe. And so they are in the process of like, you know, the sort of like a, a an amazing cultural uh, moment and political moment for themselves. The, but they, in the meantime, there is this like special ministry for dealing with all of the supernatural stuff that is now part of everyday life. Um, and Fatma is the only woman in that department at the start of this series and is dealing with that. She's also like extremely... She loves, she's like, she's dapper. <laughs> she's so dapper. Yeah. She loves to dress up in, like, three-piece suits and, like, is a really interesting person. And she gets called in on this case where a djinn has died, as you might guess from the title. And it, there's, like, weird stuff around it. And she, like, gets sucked into this whole investigation that takes her in 
surprising places. So it's not like a treasure hunt per se, but there's a lot of like moving through a world, trying to find things and people and stuff and figure out like what is going on. And there's an amazing sapphic romance in here. There are a lot of like morally gray characters throughout the series. Fatma is like pretty lawful good, but like the circumstances that she finds herself in force her to like reconsider what does good mean, you know, periodically, for example. And it's mostly novellas, but a novel came out this past year in the series that I think is fantastic. I do like, I think you could read the novel as a standalone, but I don't see why you would not want to know this character like from start to finish. So I always recommend starting with the first one, which again is A Dead Gin in Cairo by P. Jelly Clark. All right. I picked Hunger Makes the Wolf by Alex Wells, which is the first book in the Ghost Wolf series. And this is le- ooh, how to put like lesbian witches in biker gangs in the Wild West in space. <laughs> All of those things at one time. Don't forget the labor unions. <laughs> oh, with many unions. It's a, like the whole thing is about a union struggle. So Hob is the main character. She's an orphan who was left behind on this planet called uh, Tenagawa by a ship and was taken in pretty quickly by Nick Ravani, who is the head of a mercenary biker gang called the Ghost Wolves. And Nick turns her, turns her into, you know, it's like a weird kind of father-daughter relationship. Not weird just like very rough and tumble father-daughter relationship and when the book opens nick's brother has been found dead out like on the dunes this is because it's like again like the wild west so it's very like desert and stuff like that and so she has to like go deliver the news and that sets off uh, this train of events um that lead to a bunch of conflict with the corporation that runs the planet so this corporation is called trans rifts incorporated and it's essentially a mining corporation that finds and destroys planets by mining all of their resources out with like very little regard to the climate or any of the indigenous people or animals or anything that that are on them and they treat their miners just terribly like it's straight out of old west american mm. mining lore right like and so hob uh, unwillingly <laughs> gets involved in all of these labor fights mostly out of like you know her her gang is mercenary and they are looking to make a dollar but these people are also their family, you know, and their friends. And so the more they see them crushed under the boot of this bo- this big corporation, the more they want to fight back. Hob is also a witch secretly. Uh, being a witch on this planet is very not allowed. Um, and so there's a, an element of like kind of like witch hysteria, like witch hunts in it. And the what her, the uh, Meg is the side character who ends up having a very slight romance. Like romance is not a big part of this book, but she's a lesbian. And that romance kind of blooms very slowly near the end of the book. And Meg is a great character. She's um, Hobbs, like, sister from another mister, essentially. Like, they're not related biologically, but they grew up together. They are each other's closest friends. And Meg, um, the events of the book make her, at first, seem kind of like a damsel in distress. Like, she's very delicate, and she's out there, like, protected by her parents and all of this. And that all falls apart very early in the book, and she has to learn to fend for herself, and she immediately does. Um, and there's a, also a really creepy villain who works mm. for the, the corporation called the Weatherman, mm. who's just <laughs> gross. He's so gross. Um, and this, like, magical... I don't, not war, like battle, like this battle over the planet and for the for the labor union gets more and more magical when the weatherman gets involved. Anyway, it's just, he's the creepiest. It's just one of those people who you imagine, despite how he's physically described in the book as having like no irises. You know what I mean? <laughs> like his eyes are all black, like just like a shark. 
And so, yeah, there the main character Hob is very morally gray. Like she's, you know, this is a biker gang with a heart of gold and they really resent it that they have hearts of gold, but they do and they just can't help it that they're <laughs> such nice people and I love it. So that's Hunger Makes the Wolf by Alex Wells. Who is uh, also our uh, newsletter writer for SFF? Oh, yes. Side note, shout out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you like it, go sign up for the newsletter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Our next question is from Jamie, who says, I'm interested in learning more about modern witchcraft. Can you recommend a couple of good introductory books that might include some history, practices, and other general information? So, Jamie, I'm assuming you're asking about, like, Wicca slash paganism, like modern Wicca and paganism here, because you were not otherwise specific. I am including a link to a post that breaks down a bunch of the different traditions and has starting books for all of those. So you can look up that post in the show notes. But for you, I'm recommending Witches of America by Alex Marr. This is on my TBR currently. I'm still waiting for my library hold to come in. It's very interesting. Marr is uh, like a skeptic, self-proclaimed, who got involved in modern witchcraft when she was working on a documentary. And uh, and like discovered, like, you know, that there are millions of Americans practicing paganism and like it's very different from what she was expecting. And then she ends up on this deep dive into like, okay, what are the roots and like, where did it come from and how did it get here? And like, what's going on in the Bay Area with all of these crystals now and, you know, all of these (laughs) different things. And she, you know, is taking part in different rituals. She's talking to different people who have all sorts of different practices. Um, and like discovering her own sense of spirituality based on that. So there's going to there's a lot of information in here about like, you know, how do people come to it? Where where did it come from? How are we reinterpreting it in a modern way? Uh, and like lots of, you know, different uh, angles to to think about and look at as you begin this journey for yourself. So, again, that's Witches of America by Alex Marr. Um, I picked Michelle T's book called Modern Tarot, Connecting with Your Higher Self Through the Wisdom of the Cards. And this is probably coming at your question a little bit sideways because it's not explicitly about paganism or Wicca, but I think a lot of people these days get into witchier practices through tarot Mm. cards. And I think that is probably because they're really pretty. Like, they are very Instagram aesthetic, you know, so they're everywhere. Um, And they are a really easy entry point into a more witchy kind of lifestyle. But Michelle T is very, you know, she's very explicit about the idea that these do not need to be used as divination tools. I think an interesting aspect of modern witchcraft is that not a lot, or maybe not a lot, that might be overstating, but many people who practice it are agnostic or atheist or don't really have particular beliefs about the spiritual aspects of it, but still find use in the rituals and the tools for other reasons. And so if that might be you, or you might be coming at it from that kind of angle, reading the tarot cards as ways to do kind of inner work or to, or even as like journal prompts or different ways to think about your day or your life or your choices, uh, then this is a really great resource. But beyond that, she does include spells in the book. Like, the tarot is 78 cards. And for each card, she includes a like how to be more like this card kind of spell. So like if you want to be more like, I don't know, the emperor card, which has a lot of big D, you know, BDE, uh, and you really want more of that like kind of powerful sort of masculine feeling in your life, here's a spell on how to make that happen. So it's not just a guide to reading the tarot, though it is, and it breaks it down card by card in, in, in her like very characteristically kind of snarky, funny, thoughtful way. Um, but there are very simple and easy spells that you can do to embody the energy of each of the cards if you want to with pretty accessible ingredients. I've never seen a spell in the book, and I've read the whole thing 
something um, that involves something I couldn't just like go get at the store, <laughs> like the grocery store. So yeah, very accessible. So that's Modern Tarot by Michelle T. Quick side note, I can't believe I forgot uh-huh. to mention this earlier. Basic Witches by Jaius Xena and yeah. Jess Zimmerman. Also super accessible, like start from, you know, start practicing some rituals and see how they feel kind of style. But that's very about like, like Amanda was saying, the um, sort of psychological and like self uh, investigation is the word I'm wanting, like yeah. aspect. Like actualization. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Actualization uh, aspect of, of witchcraft. If you're like less interested in like the deep dive that I gave you, this is basic, which is great for that, too. Alrighty, our last question is from Giovanna, who says, in an attempt to read more nonfiction, I'm trying out reading one fiction and one nonfiction book at the same time. I switch after each chapter. Currently, I'm reading Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer and The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry. So far, they pair beautiful, beautifully. My next nonfiction books will be This Is Going to Hurt by Adam Kay and The Nordic Theory of Everything by Anu Partenin. What fiction recommendations do you have to pair with these? Okay, um, I took This Is Going to Hurt by Adam Kay. We split this question. Uh, and This Is Going to Hurt is a memoir about working for the NHS in the UK. Like, it's a memoir about a doctor um, working for the National Health Service. So to pair with that, I picked the novel Cutting for Stone by Abraham Vergesi, which is about a set of twins, Marion and Shiva, their twin brothers, who grow up in Addis Ababa. And their mother is a was an Indian nun, and their father was a white surgeon from the UK. When they meet at a, a mission hospital in Ethiopia, she gets pregnant and has these twins. She dies in childbirth and their father never gets over it and disappears quite early in their life. So these brothers are raised in Ethiopia in this mission, um, kind of alone. Like they have people who are supervising them, sort of, but it's very like, well, <laughs> it's the 50s. I don't know what you want from me, you know, kind of a thing. Like they are just left. And so they grow up in that situation, both of them are super into medicine. Like they have a deep, deep love of medicine. And one of them stays in Ethiopia and becomes a, a doctor to the people there. One of them moves to the US and does the same thing in medical school. And they have a woman who they both love, which makes things very difficult between them. Uh, eventually, one of them flees. And like you are just watching them grow up in the very in the two different medical systems like one in the US and one in Ethiopia and this woman that they both love is like a catalyst for their relationship it's really a story about brothers and the love between brothers especially twins which as a mother of twins i'm like very into reading about mm-hmm. but the the way that Marion I'm pretty sure it's Marion and not Shiva. Yeah, Marion, who is the boy who goes to New York and starts working in a, a New York City hospital, which is like very underfunded and all the beds are full and it's just very difficult work. I think we'll find, you'll find a lot of parallels between that and the Adam K book, which is about kind of how the NHS is very underfunded and all the beds are booked and all of that. So there will be similarities there. But also just like a novel about how difficult it is to be a doctor in any culture, like to be a healer, Mm. to be a person who other people depend on for their lives, like their literal lives, that kind of pressure, no matter what year you're born in or what country is just always going to be hard to deal with. So that's Cutting for Stone by Abraham Vergesi. Yeah, so I took the uh, Nordic Theory of Everything pairing, and I was looking at at that book. It sounds interesting. It's all about the author, you know, came to live in the U.S. and experienced a lot of culture shock. Uh, There's a lot of values from her upbringing in the Nordic Scandinavian traditions where, you know, self-reliance and um, nature appreciation and all of these different things and how uh, she feels like Americans would really benefit from having more of that, which like 
certainly sounds legit to me. (laughs) Um, But I was thinking about like, okay, what Nordic fiction do I want to recommend to you? And I settled on Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck. Content warning, body horror. Like there is a fair amount of it in here. So just just know that going in if that's going to be a problem for you. Find something else. But this this is a short story collection, which I think is perfect for alternating chapter by chapter with a nonfiction book because you'll get this, like, you know, dose of a story and then you can go back to your nonfiction and come back, etc. And this collection is so interesting. There's, like you know, sort of stories that feel very modern, like a woman who is cleaning out um, one of her deceased relatives, like mountain cabins. And then there's some slightly surreal experiences that happen around that. There is like a futuristic stuff. There's sort of mythy stuff. There's all kinds of interesting, fascinating stories in here that, like I said, do go dark and can contain some body horror. But it's such a look at like these different cultural touch points in uh, Swedish life. And and I, I Google assures me that Sweden is a Nordic country, by the way, side note. I had to Google that. I was like, what counts <laughs> as Nordic? Turns out Sweden, uh, among other things. And like Tidbeck is doing such a fascinating job of highlighting these different parts of life. And so I feel like, you know, this nonfiction is very much about like all of the like bright and shiny stuff that we can learn from as Americans. But what's interesting to me about a culture is like, okay, but like, what is that culture thinking about? Like, right? Like, what is like, what are like the darker bits or the weirder bits? Like, that's what this collection is going to give you. Uh, So again, that is Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck. And that's our show. Hey! We We did it! it. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our audio editor, Jen Zink. For more recommendations, you can go to bookriot.com, which you should do because our best books of the year post just came out and our Read Harder 2022 challenge. So all of those are up and ready for your perusal. You can find our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. Go subscribe to Adaptation Nation because I'm about to do an episode about the Pelican Reef that I'm so excited about. (laughs) Um, Please go leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to our sponsors. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Where's the Jen? You can find me on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L, or on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And we will be back next week. 